Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Lighthouse Bible Church today. Let's begin by entering into prayer at this time together. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you today in awe of your presence and awe of who you are. We thank you, Father, so much that you gave us your son, Jesus Christ, and he went to the cross for us, died for our sins, and was buried. And on the third day, you raised him from the dead so that whoever believes in your son, the good news about his death and resurrection will never perish, but has eternal life. Father, today as we begin, we would ask that the Spirit would guide and direct all the goings on here at White House Bible Church today. We pray that for the message and the hearers. We pray that for the fellowshipping with one another, the prayer, the giving, everything that uh, you've asked us to do as we gather together as a family. We also want to remember, Father, the church around the world, especially those in pers- being persecuted in countries. We would pray, Father, that you would encourage them, that also you would motivate the body in the free countries to help them in any way they can. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please stand and worship with us. Good morning again, everybody. We have just a few announcements before we get started with the message today. The mission organization that we are Featuring this month is Mission Aviation Fellowship. As many of you know, we uh, help them out financially in prayer. They uh, use technology, aviation, to reach places that are really impossible to reach any other way than by plane. And last week, we saw the story of a family that is part of Mission Aviation Fellowship. This, again, is Stephen and Ruth Hale. He's a pilot and mechanic, and they're living now in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. So we ask again this week to keep them in prayer and the whole missionary organization. Again, it's Mission Aviation Fellowship, their website, www.maf.org. All right, a couple of scheduling items. We'll be uh, on break from Monday, August 5th through Sunday, August 11th. From Monday, August 5th through Sunday, August 11th. That seven-day period. And so what that means is that um, we will not be having Bible study on that Thursday, which is August 8th. We also won't be having a Sunday service that following Sunday, August 11th. But we will pick up, obviously, the week after that. So please make a note of that. By the way, in two Sundays from now, on August 4th, we'll once again be celebrating the Lord's Supper together and uh, bring into remembrance the death of the Lord, gathering as a family to do that. And again, I want to remind everybody that uh, Destiny Housie and her husband are be sponsoring a trip to Israel in next March. And uh, they, they were looking for a few individuals, families to join them. Uh, the church in Texas is going to be a part of that too. Ask to keep that in prayer. But if you're interested in it, you can also see me. I've got all the details here. Again, it's March 8th to the 18th, 2020. And their agenda has them going Jerusalem, Bethlehem, the Mount of Olives, the Dead Sea, the Judean wilderness, and that's only the half of it. Everything you can imagine from the, from the Bible that is a geographic location they're going to visit during that trip. So again, if anybody's interested, and I hope there are some people that are interested, um, please let me know and I'll give you all the information. There's a website, contact information, and more details. All right. By the way, I want to mention that we have Bibles for anybody who needs one. All you got to do is raise your hand, and we'll make sure that you get one. If anybody needs a Bible, all right. Seems like we're all set in that department good. Because you're going to need a Bible, because we're about to look into the Word of God. The title today of the message is, Knowledge Makes Arrogant, 
but love edifies. There it is. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. This is right out of the first verse in 1 Corinthians 8. We'll be there today. We're going to look at that whole chapter. And even at the outset, I want to note that this is an interesting statement that Paul makes. After all, we've just seen him in the earlier chapters keep saying, don't you know? Don't you know? In other words, you should know these things. And now he's saying knowledge makes arrogant. So how do you figure that out? Well, we're going to see that this morning. And it has to do with the second part, love edifies. We're going to see how knowledge alone without love can be dangerous. Let's read the passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Verse 1, now, concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant. Love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he's known by God. Therefore, concerning the the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there's no such thing as an idol in the world. Not really. And that there is no God but one. For even if there are many so-called gods, whether in heaven and on earth, and at that point in time the, um, the cities in the Roman Empire were filled with temples to different gods and goddesses, Aphrodite, Apollo, and so forth. You'd learn that in Greek mythology growing up, but the fact is that they were false gods that were worshipped by the people at that time. They're so-called gods because they have no reality. They have no reality. Zeus wasn't a real anything. He was really made up. He was something that was made in the image and likeness of man rather than the other way around. Man is actually made in the image and likeness of God. But in any event, people worship them. He said, so there are, even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many, just look around, gods and many lords, yet for us there is what one God, capital G, God the Father, from whom are all things. Everything comes from the one God, the God of the Bible, God the Father. And we exist for him and nobody else. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We're neither the worse if we don't eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened and built up in a bad way to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you actually sin against Christ himself. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I'll never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. We're going to take a look at this passage, one verse at a time. But again, the title of today's message comes right out of verse 1 of chapter 8. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. So in other words, you can have knowledge and that's all right and good. But if you don't have love along with it, it's nothing. Paul's going to say that later on. We're going to see that passage this morning. He's saying knowledge without love is a problem. Because if you don't have love, you're going to get arrogant. 
The knowledge will puff you up, think you're better than other people. Love has the opposite of that. Love makes, makes an issue, not of yourself, but of God. And it doesn't puff up so that you're greater than somebody. You become a servant, so you build up a brother or a sister in Christ. That's the exact opposite. Now, as chapter 8 begins, as we can see, starting in verse 1, he mentions idols and things sacrificed to idols. And matter of fact, that's going to be the subject of the next three chapters of this letter in 1 Corinthians. The eating of things sacrificed to idols. By the way, when you think about it, if, if Paul's going to dedicate three chapters to this one subject, what does it tell you? It tells you that this was a real problem at the time. That this was something that the congregation in Corinth, and many other places, by the way, were wrestling with. We're going to see why that is. It has to do with how they were brought up. It has to do with the attitudes and and impressions that they brought into their Christian life. All right, so it's a big issue. Paul has to deal with it. And as we're going to see, he deals with it in stages. He, He takes three chapters to present the entire case. This chapter that we're going to be in today, chapter 8, is simply the opening argument. Now imagine if you are in court, and all you hear is an opening argument, and then you leave. And you don't see any evidence or rationale or any of that. Well, you're going to have a misleading understanding of the case. And in fact, that's the same thing here. It can be misleading to just read chapter 8 in a vacuum and say, well, that's it. The reason is, is because, believe me, things will seem confusing. You'll say, wait a minute, that, does, that seems contradictory. And if you don't get the rest of the explanation you're going to be confused about it. Now, for that reason, I encourage you to read the whole section a few times. I haven't said this in a while, but, you know, that's the key to understanding God's Word, is to read the whole section, the whole letter. This letter is is long, and so rather than have you read the whole letter, which is great to do also, right now I'm saying make sure you read chapters 8, 9, and 10, as well as the first verse of chapter 11. That's all one unit. And you'll get the whole picture if you read all the way through. All right? Very important in this section of the 1 Corinthians. Now, we're going to go into some territory this morning that could could, could cause you to wonder about this statement. But I'm going to put it up because this is absolutely true. Paul is completely opposed to the eating of food, notice that word, knowingly sacrificed to idols. That's an important word, knowingly. See, there's going to be a lot of cases that, that, are, that are going on in their lives now where they don't necessarily know where the food came from. And Paul's going to say, that's fine. As a matter of fact, don't look too closely, you know. Because the issue isn't the food itself. We're going to see this. The issue is the worship that is, that is attached to it. So that if you know this has been sacrificed to idols, you can't eat it. This is Paul's position. Now, why is that? Well, because Paul was strenuously opposed to idolatry of any type. There's a difference between an idol and idolatry. They're similar, and the words are similar, but they're totally different. Why? Because an idol is just, you know, a piece of wood, a piece of metal, and so forth. Now, what's problem was, was that people worshipped that idol, thinking that they were worshipping a god. So that the idol was associated with a God, and they were worshiping that God instead of worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the problem. It's the worship of idols that's the problem. So that if you knowingly eat food sacrificed to idols, you you know that somebody was worshiping that food, and when they see you eating it, they assume that you worship that God also. So that's the big picture here, and I want to make sure you see that right away. And again, let me repeat this for emphasis. 
Idolatry is the worship of idols. It's false worship. It's giving worship that should only be given to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and taking that worship instead and worshiping a false god. Right? You shall not have any gods before me. Right? That's what the Lord said in the Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus. He says other places that he's a jealous God. He doesn't want any rivals. Well, these were rivals, you see, and that was the issue. It's the worship of idols, the worship of false gods, the religion of it. That's what Paul was strenuously opposed to. But here's the interesting part. Even though he knows that's ultimately where he's going to land, it's ultimately where he's headed, he doesn't begin there. He could have. He could have just made, a, as they call in the military, a frontal assault right at him at the Corinthians. He could have just simply written very simply, concerning things sacrificed to idols, eating food that you know has been sacrificed to idols is sinful and prohibited. And that would have been it. Rather than having three chapters, we'd have had one verse and he'd moved on. That's not what he does. Now why is that? By the way, there will be a point in this section where he'll do exactly that later on, not in chapter 8, chapter 10. I'd like you to turn to 1 Corinthians 10, verse 20. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 20, to see as he's wrapping things up, he finally states it right out. And it's interesting. Let's see it. But Paul's usually not like this. He's usually very bold and upfront, but here he's taking a different approach. And we have to ask at some point why that is. But here's ultimately what he's going to say. He's going to say it in an unforgettable way to make it crystal clear all right, that, that eating food sacrificed to idols is sinful and an affront to the living God. Notice, 1 Corinthians 10, 20. No, but I say that the things that the Gentiles sacrifice in the pagan temples, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. Is that pretty clear? Not food that they sacrifice. They're sacrificing to demons. Whether they know it or not, they probably don't know. I'm sure when I know I, when I was in school and I was reading Greek mythology, I thought it was really cool. You know, you got this God up there, this God up there, and they, they, have, they, they run cities and all that stuff. I never realized until much, much later that actually demons were behind all of that. But they, as, as usually is the case with Satan and his, and his fallen angels and demons, they hide it. Right? They're deceiving. And that's what's going on here. They're behind it. Now, they're not behind the idol itself. It's not like they're in the idol of, of wood or metal. They weren't in it. They were behind it. And that's important to understand. He said, listen, when you, the things, the food that the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to become sharers in demons. He's saying that's really what's going on when you eat food that you know has been sacrificed to idols. You're actually become sharers in demons because they're behind it. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord. In other words, you can't come to the Lord's Supper and drink of the cup of the Lord and then turn around and drink of the cup of demons. They're totally, that's to, they're totally you know, opposites. They're, they're, they're good and evil, right? You can't say, I'm going to be good on Sunday. A lot of people say that. I'm going to be good on Sunday. I'm going to be evil the rest of the week. You know? That, that's what people sometimes do. I've mentioned this many times, that there's so many people today that put together their own designer religion. You know, well, I know the Christians worship on Sunday, so I'll be a Christian on Sunday. Jews, they're Saturday, so Saturday is for Judaism and so forth. I don't know, the moon god on Monday, who knows, right? Well, that's what they're talking about here, you know, mixing and matching, saying, you know what? 
I like the Christian God. I like that love your neighbor stuff. But at the same time, I also want to go over here because I really like the rituals involved over here. But now, Paul, that's foggy, right? Human beings, we're famous for making things foggy. What I mean by that? Well, you know what? If it's not really clear, I can sort of wiggle out of being uh, condemned in any way. I'll just say, well, you know, it's a little this, little that. I wasn't quite sure. I mean, the language today is full of those kind of things, wiggle room. It all depends upon the, what the meaning of the word is, is. You know what I'm saying? That's our culture today. Mix things up. Make it confusing so you don't, nobody really sees what's going on. Paul makes it crystal clear, doesn't he, here in 1 Corinthians 10. He said, the, the things that the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I don't want you to become sharers in demons. You can't drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons, can you? You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. And again, the, the point here is that we're in chapter 8 today, and he could have taken this and shoved it down their throat right away. He could have come right out and said that. And the question is, why doesn't he do that? Here's why. Here's why. Remember we saw last week that Paul was operating in his uh, function as a pastor in dealing with the subject of uh, marriage and, and virgins. Remember that? As a pastor. He didn't just come out and say, here's the prohibition. Same thing here. You see, what Paul wants to do is to convince them to change their minds on their own. Rather than coming at them with an edict... He wants to come at them with an argument. He wants them to be convinced and freely adopt the teaching. Not, under, not force them to. That's grace. That's the way God operates with us. And that's the way Paul's operating with the Corinthians on this subject. So he begins, in winning them over, he begins with an appeal to love. To love. What kind of love? Well, definitely love for their weaker brethren, as we'll see. We saw that in the passage. He's saying, listen, there's some things about this that you may not have considered yet. But if you love your weaker brethren, you won't do that. So he's appealing to their love for weaker brethren. We'll see more about what that word weaker means. But just for now, he's saying, think about them. Your love for them will stop you from doing some things that you'd otherwise think you're free to do. But really, the love that he's really foremost interested in making sure that they look and understand and live in, is love for God the Father. You shall love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. He understood that. They had a complete misunderstanding of who they say, well, God is one, but they don't really have an understanding of who he is, right? And so that's what the issue was. He's saying, listen, you've got to understand the love that you have for God the Father, and by the way, the love he has for you, and also the love for the Lord. He died for these weaker brothers that you could very well put in a dangerous situation by your supposed freedom to act as you wish. Love will prevent that. Love will prevent that. All right, let's see how he goes about this. His work to convince them, not to, to demand them. Okay, let's see it. 1 Corinthians 8, 1. Go back to 1 Corinthians 8, our passage for today, and we'll begin. 1 Corinthians 8, 1. Now, concerning things sacrificed to idols. When you see that now concerning, what does that trigger, I hope, by this point? It means this is another thing that they had written in their letter. Now, concerning what you wrote, we just deal with what you wrote concerning virgins. Now we're going to deal with what you wrote concerning things sacrificed to idols. This is something they brought up to him. 
He writes, we, all, we know that we all have knowledge. They must have written in that. The part of their argument must have been, well, you know, on this subject of things sacrificed to idols, we've got knowledge about it. So we can do stuff that maybe other people can't. Knowledge, that kind of knowledge, makes arrogant, puffs you up. Love edifies. And this is, this is the point, by the way. The point for us, the thing we take, I mean, I don't know about you, but I very rarely meet somebody who is, you know, in their backyard sacrificing animals to idols. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. Maybe you guys can give me other stories. I don't know. By the way, you could. If you were in certain cultures, by the way, you would see it. Yeah, I mean, for example, yeah, Haitian, right? The voodoo, they do it. They take chickens. I don't even want to know, but I know they do that. And by the way, the Muslims do it. Maybe not know this, but they have some kind called halal. And what that is, is that they actually, before they eat something, they prepare it in a certain way, and then they offer it to Allah. They actually turn towards Mecca and say, here you go. So it's really, it is around us, although we don't tend to think of it that way, and we don't come across it perhaps all the time. But what's the principle here in verse 1 applies to us now and every generation of Christians. Knowledge makes arrogant. Knowledge by itself makes somebody arrogant. Do you know any Christians that, that think, well, you know what? I have lots and lots of knowledge. I'm a better Christian than you are. You better get the knowledge that I have. And once you do, then you'll be as good as I am and God will be really happy with you. There's a lot of Christians who think that. By the way, they're the ones that are still looking at the Bible. <laughs> I won't even talk about the rest of the Christians. But you can, you can, unfortunately, you can use knowledge as a weapon. And so Paul says, that's not good. No, he says, listen, you've got to bring in love. You've got to take love, and that's the, that's the core of it. And then your knowledge works around love, not the other way around. So he's saying that. He's saying, listen, love edifies. Knowledge by itself makes people arrogant. So he begins with this appeal to love. If anyone supposes, verse 2, that he knows anything, the key word there is supposes. In other words, they're, 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 they're in love with their knowledge. They suppose, you know what, I know this. It's funny, you know, people, have, uh, people come to church and they hear one message on a subject and they go away, I know it now. Well, they don't know anything, even though they've heard it and they maybe even memorized the verse, but they don't really know. Why is that? Because there's this thing called the depth of wisdom and understanding that, has to, that comes with time. That comes with marrying love to the principle. Seeing how the Lord thinks about things. And across all of the different areas of knowledge that are in the Bible. That doesn't come with hearing a message once. You know, there was a pastor one time. He gave a message. People really liked it. At the end, somebody came up to him and asked him a question. They said, hey, pastor, how long did it take you to put together that message? You know what he said? Ten years. What did he mean? He meant that he wasn't ready to deliver it until he'd gone through things and learned things and seen so much about the life of Christianity that he could actually deliver the message. They didn't understand that. They thought it was like any other kind of knowledge that he could just... No. You know, it's the same thing for us as pastors. Knowledge, trust me. Knowledge makes pastors arrogant. It it does. I've seen it over and over again. Love is the key. Love is the key. That's the thing you should really observe. Not just what people know, but who they are. What they do. Right? Paul says that particularly about the pastors, the communicators, the Pharisees. You know? He says, listen to what they have to say, but don't do what they do. 
You see, that's the issue. Love edifies. All right. So again, he says, if anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. He thinks he does, but he doesn't. That's a dangerous place to be. Remember the Lord said, how, how, how deep is your darkness when you think you're in the light? Right? I know, and you don't. You know, you're over here in the darkness, really, with the correct of really understanding that subject. You don't know anything. Right? You have not yet known as you ought to know. There's a way to know. Notice that. You, you suppose you know, but you have not yet known as you ought to know. All right. If anyone loves God, that's where you start. He's known by God. So again, we see in verse 1, this is another subject that Corinthians brought up to Paul in their letter. And here's the thing. They knew where Paul stood on the matter. If you were to read Acts chapter 15, we won't go there today. You'll see that, that um, there's a point at which Paul comes to Jerusalem and gets together with the other apostles. And they realize he's got this great work going on with the Gentiles. And they say, look, there's a couple of things we want to make sure they know, right? And one of those things was don't eat food sacrificed to idols. So you can be sure that with early on, and when uh, Paul spent a year and a half in Corinth, early on you know that that came up and that he dealt with it. So they weren't coming in ignorant. They weren't like as if coming for the first time and saying, hey, you know, Paul, this thing just came up about this food sacrificed to idols. What do you think? No. They knew what he thought. What, the, what were they doing? They were challenging his teaching. They were challenging it because it was hard. We're going to see that. It was hard for them to take that teaching. Just like today, you know, whenever I preach on marriage and divorce, that's a hard message for a lot of people. I understand that. But it's true. And it's the same thing here. They would have to sacrifice things to be sticking with that teaching. And we'll see why that is. So they didn't want to. It's human nature. You know, we're going to challenge that, Paul. We don't really like that. They're arguing with him in the letter. And what's their argument? We can see it already. Hey, we have knowledge. Let me tell you something. We got knowledge, and that knowledge is more important than what you having to say about... As a matter of fact, our knowledge, we can see how that allows us to eat food, sacrifice to idols. They knew things. That's a very dangerous place to be. See, to their way of thinking, that settled the matter. I know some things, that settles it. What knowledge were they talking about? Let's look at verse 4. He tells us. Isn't that great, the word of God? Anytime you have a question, hang in there. It'll be answered. Therefore, concerning the eating of things, sacrificed to idols, we know. See, these are the things he knew. They knew, rather. We know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world. You see, that was part of their argument. How can you be on our case not to eat food sacrificed to idols when we all know there's no such thing as an idol? Doesn't that, see how smart that made them sound? Yeah, well, we're going to see that, what that's about. And that there's no God but one. In other words, the idols aren't real. We know who God is. We're worshiping him, so we can have freedom to do this other thing. It doesn't mean anything. They're not even real, those idols. That's their argument. All right, so what are the two points? One, there is no such thing as an idol in the world. Two, there is no God but one. Do you, do you think, though, that this is the, the end of the story when it comes to what the Bible has to say about anything? No such thing as an idol. I'm so smart. No God but one. I grasped that message, Paul. You gave it to us. We understand it now. Those old gods that we were worshiping, we know they're nothing. God the Father is everything. Okay. Now, can we argue with those two points? 
Is there anything that's untrue about number one and number two? And the answer is no. They did have some knowledge, okay? They did. They knew that. But there were some things they didn't know. So again, we know that there's no such thing as an idol in the world. This is the, They already knew. This is their argument. And there's no God but one. And Paul agrees with it. He says, yeah, you know, even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or earth, these idols, these false gods, the worship of Caesar, all these things that were going on. He says, as indeed, there are many out there, gods and many lords that people are worshiping out there, just like today. Yet for us, there is one God. But then he says something interesting. The Father. What does that do? It brings it down from this philosophical argument into who he really is. What's a father? Father loves his children. Our relationship with the Father is more than just what the philosophers came up with about one God. It was a loving daily relationship with God the Father, person. And from all, from whom are all things. In other words, all this thing we're talking about, the idols not being real, all of that, you know, God's over all of that. And so rather than you taking your partial knowledge and saying that settles it, you have to first orient yourself to the living God. What does he say about it? You see it? He says, there's one God, the Father, from whom are all things. We exist for him. That wasn't true. They weren't living like they exist for God. They were living like they exist for themselves. They wanted a certain freedom. They were going to argue their way into it. All right. And, and there's one Lord, Jesus Christ. Caesar's not the real Lord. He's a fake. There's one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things. God created the world through Jesus Christ, who's also God. And we exist through him. Our relationship to God the Father, remember Jesus said, there's one way to the Father, right? But through me. No one can come to the Father but through me, you see? And that, so that, now what does that open up? Well, now, not only do I have to understand God the Father, I better take a look at Jesus Christ. I better take a look and understand what he did for all of us. And what does that say about him? You see, it's not enough just to have knowledge that you've grasped. That supports your argument. You're going to step back. You're going to look at things from God's point of view. You're going to look at things from in the perspective of the cross. That'll change you. Every time I look at the cross, it changes me. It, just, it, it, I, it stops me short. It, it, it clears up some things. It takes me out of any selfishness. Just look at the cross of Jesus Christ. Look at the love there. Look at the forgiveness there. And orient to him in that way. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. So they had accurate knowledge, but there was not enough. See, there were other true things that weren't in their argument. That they hadn't put on the list. That they didn't bring up. And the point here is that there are always things like that. We all have blind spots. Especially when we're trying to make a point. You know, this is something, too, that, boy, for a long time, when I met somebody who was an unbeliever, the first thing I wanted to know was, what was their false religion? And the reason I wanted to know that, because I wanted to argue with it and put it down. Knowledge makes arrogant. Love edifies. You see that? Our knowledge is partial. Do you think I know everything about Islam? Heck no. But not only that, do you think I know everything? about who God is, everything about what the Bible has to say? Absolutely not. It's partial. It's incomplete. No matter how much we think we know, our knowledge is still incomplete. And the more we think we know things, the more incomplete our knowledge is. The more actually worthless it is. 
because our focus is on us. What do I know? How can I get it over on somebody else? How can I change Paul's mind? Think about it. What is that? Arrogance. Paul had a, had, a, had a revelation directly from Jesus Christ. What he's saying has been true since the book of Exodus and has been brought into the New Testament principles. And yet I think I have got knowledge that will convince Paul to see things my way. Now, before you get too upset, by the way, with the Corinthians, we better take a look and do some introspection here. Because we do the same thing. We may, and again, we got a blind spot, Right? We got a, the whole subject of divorce. I, I've seen people that have tried to string together a whole set of complicated arguments. Case A, case B, case C, case D. And, and really it's simple. Turn your brain off. Go to the word of God. What does it just say? You see? And that's the problem. When you think you know something, trust me, you've got big blind spots. Our knowledge is incomplete. In other words, there's knowledge. And then there's true knowledge. The true knowledge is what is called the full assurance of understanding. The full assurance of understanding. It's not just a factoid. It's something understood. You have wisdom about it. And you have fully assured about it. Okay. That's different from just knowing something. Just as a fact. Okay. That's what Colossians 2.2 says. Turn now to 1 Corinthians 13 in the same letter. And we're studying now. Please turn to chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians We're going to look at just one verse, verse 2. Oh, I know things. I'm a great believer. Man, I can quote you all the promises in the Bible. And as a matter of fact, I even believe a lot of them. Is that enough? Let's see. 1 Corinthians 13, 2. If I have the gift of prophecy... If I know all mysteries, and I know all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. I have not known yet as I ought to know. I can know all the mysteries. People can recite all of the mystery doctrine of the New Testament. They can have all knowledge. They actually have a photographic memory, and they can see every verse of Scripture. And they believe it, but there's something lacking. There's something that they don't have, and it's love. And if you don't have love, I don't care what knowledge you have, you're nothing. Sounds harsh. Well, that's what the Bible says. I go with that. If I don't have love, no matter what I know, I am nothing. Knowledge without love is useless. Throw it away. Knowledge without love is useless. As a matter of fact, as we're going to see, it's actually dangerous. Knowledge in the hands of somebody who is not in tune or is not living according to the love of God is a dangerous tool for them to have. We're going to see that that's exactly what 1 Corinthians 8 is going to talk about. It's dangerous because it makes us arrogant. makes us all puffed up. And you know, if there's one thing I've learned about arrogant people, it's this. Arrogant people hurt other people. Let me say that again. Arrogant people hurt other people. Knowledge makes arrogant. Arrogant people hurt other people. That's the danger. You see, they, what they end up doing is they wield their knowledge as a weapon. 
they, they have some, they have a new believer, and the new believer has a heart for the Lord. May not know everything, doesn't know much, but they have a heart for the Lord, and they're little, as it were, baby steps as a Christian God is pleased with. Because they're living according to the love, as they, you know, they understand something here. God so loved me that He gave me His Son so that I believe in Him and have eternal life. I'm a sinner. Christ died for sinners. Christ died for me. That is the most profound thing you're ever going to know. <laughs> All right? But then somebody's going to come along and they're going to say, well, you know, your sins weren't really forgiven at the cross. You've got to do A, B, and C. I know that. You don't. Go back to the back of the class where you learn some more knowledge. We can wield knowledge as a weapon because there's no love there. Arrogant people hurt other people. That's why God's opposed to the proud. All right, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2. 1 Corinthians 8.2 If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, there's where it really starts. He is known by him. When you make the issue what you know, you reveal your ignorance. Isn't that something? When you make the issue what you know, All you're doing is revealing your ignorance. Hello? Like Abraham Lincoln said, you know, if you're really a dummy, keep your mouth shut. Because no one will get the picture. As soon as you open your mouth, everyone will know. All right. Yeah, you know God is love. I mean, one. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I heard that. You wrote it in your letter, guys. You know God is one. But do you also, have you come to understand the full assurance of understanding that God is love? He says, I don't think so. Because if you do, you wouldn't be using your knowledge as a weapon right now. And that's what you're doing to a weaker brother. No, you don't understand that, you see. You're really ignorant about God. And you didn't realize it, which is worse. Now, the interesting thing, and this is kind of a, kind of a, a, a verse that at first glance you look at it and you say, I'm not really sure what he's saying. If anyone loves God, he is known by him. Well, this is what he's saying. Loving God reveals that he knows us. In other words, where does our love for God come from, right? It comes from Him. It comes from the fact that He knew us when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and He made us alive, and He knew us before time began, and He called us, and He predestined us, meaning He he put our whole life in order for us, and then He called us, and then at the moment we believed in His Son, He justified us. In other words, He went first. Right? That's why we love him. That's why we can love him. We're known by him. His knowledge is the only knowledge that's perfect. So if you're going around using your knowledge in a certain area, I would ask one thing of you. I would ask, first, go to the Father. So many times, when, it's every day, I get caught up in something. I know that this isn't quite right. It doesn't feel right. I know there's something wrong with how I'm thinking. Bah, I'll figure it out. Just give me some time. I never get there. I never get there. I spin my wheels. And then as soon as I say, you know what? Not me. I'm going to put it in the hands of the Lord. (coughs) When the Lord's ready, the Spirit will help me see my thinking was wrong and how and correct it. You see, he's the only one who has perfect knowledge. And by the way, you know that we're wicked and deceitful in our brains? You know that nothing good dwells in us that is our flesh? That's a verse that we should really try to get the full assurance of understanding about. 
You know, we get all wrapped up in what, good and bad, you know. You, get, you have a bad thought, you're all condemned. You know what? That just proves you're arrogant. Well, I shouldn't have had that thought, you know, because I'm perfect. Or I don't, I, I don't really think that whole thing about nothing good dwells in me. Come on, nothing. Well, until you grasp that truth, right, you're going to be in knots about things you say, things you think, even things you do, okay? They come from the flesh. It's not I, but the sin which dwells in me, and that's not going anywhere. So I better understand that I need the power of the Spirit, right? The Spirit conquers the flesh, not me. He's the only knowledge that's perfect. He knew us perfectly from all of eternity. He saved us. He called us. We didn't call him. A lot of people think they call God on the phone and say, hey, I'm ready. And then God gives them the message and says, yeah, believe. Look at me. I'm pretty good. No, he called us, not the other way around. He saw the end from the beginning. His knowledge about us is perfect. Every day, every moment, think about it. We think we're hiding something, we're getting away with something. God knows us perfectly. Now, the comfort of that is that he saved us anyway. He, knowing exactly how wicked we were, and in our flesh still are, he gave us his son to die. That tells you, every, that's love, by the way. And so that tells you everything that you need to be comforted and rest, even though we know nothing good dwells in our flesh. He know, he's known that from before the world began. So, here's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, God knew you perfectly. From eternity past, that's the only knowledge that matters. What's Paul doing here? You know what he's doing? Remember, their argument came from knowledge, right? I know this, I know that. He's using their strongest argument, which was their knowledge. And he's using it against them. He's saying, you don't understand things. You think you know, but you don't understand. So your lack of love trumps the fact that you know things. It's worthless. Throw it out. You don't understand love yet. It's the truth. They said, there's no such thing as an idol. That's true. You know, idols, they're dumb. They're mute. They don't talk. They're, they're lower than humans, never mind God. They can't talk. They can't hear. They can't see. They're idols. If you go, and by the way, we still have this today. We have places of worship where people go in and they talk to statues. You know, the statue's not alive. It can't hear you. See, idols are nothing. There's no really such thing. There's no substance to it. However, there is such a thing as idol a tree. That's the difference. Okay? I know, if somebody knows that they're nothing, and I, you know, we're going to see a passage in Romans in a minute, we, people know that they're nothing, but they worship them anyway. That's the sin. That's the evil. Idolatry. The worship of so-called gods and lords. That's the danger. And by the way, he said this to them, he says it to us. If you think you know enough that your knowledge will help you avoid any of that danger, you better think again. You better think again. And while you're thinking about it, don't just think about yourself. Think about the effect that your behavior can have on other brothers and sisters for whom Christ died. Again, this is a We don't, may not have to deal with food sacrifice to idols, but we better come to terms with that. We better not just say, hey, look, I have the liberty to do this. I am free. And not take into consideration the effect that your behavior can have on other brothers and sisters for whom Christ died. Give me an example. You know why I'm free? I can, I can go to a bar and I can have a drink. And God says it's not a sin. 
Well, what about the guy you're bringing with you to the bar? Right? Maybe you can, you know, you have immunity. But what if he doesn't? Did you think about that? I mean, that's just one example. Did you think about your brother when you're doing that? Did you think about your sister in Christ when you were doing that? Most people don't, unfortunately. Why? Because they have knowledge, but they lack love. Think about the effect your behavior can have on your brothers and sisters. It's not all about you. Right? I think that should be like the first lesson that a new believer gets. Let me explain something. You're going to learn a lot about Christianity, but there's one thing I don't want you to forget. It's not all about you. Unfortunately, that's, you know, that's the church today. It's all, make it all about them. We'll entertain you. We'll tell you that you know, we'll never bring up hard subjects with you. We're not going to talk about sin with you. We're not going to talk about any of that because it's all about you. You know, McDonald's, you deserve a break today. So get up and get away to McDonald's. We do it all for you. No, it's about your brothers and sisters. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about God the Father. And by the way, don't kid yourself here. Don't think your knowledge is enough because demons are behind it. De- I know people don't want to hear demons. You know, if, if you were to go to a mega church today and talk about the fact that demons are behind idols, they wouldn't have as many people next week. Trust me. That wouldn't be an edifying message in their eyes. No. Demons are involved. Idols are fake. Demons are real. Right? Demons are real. Okay? Don't think that your knowledge is enough to go up against demons. A lot of people, oh, they want to cast out demons. You know, other people think that if they say something, God has to do what they don't want and so forth. Throw that out. You're no match in your flesh, in your knowledge even, for a demon. Paul, again, just go to chapter 7. Paul says, in my mind, I know I agree with the law, but in my body, there's another law that makes it impossible for me to do what my mind thinks. That's just the flesh. Imagine going up against a demon. Right? We don't have to. Why? Because God so loved the world that he gave his son, so whoever believes in him will never perish but have eternal life, and the Lord beat the demons at the cross. That's all we need to know. We don't have to go up against them. We just understand that. Now, now what, so what sense would it make to say, wow, I see it. The Lord in his death and resurrection delivered me from all of that wickedness. But, but hold on, by the way, you know what? I got a brother that's going to a restaurant, a cousin, a friend, a business association, and they're doing some weird worship there. Maybe they're Masons or whatever they're doing or Muslims and stuff. But, you know, I'm going to go there. Really? So what you're saying is, is that the person for whom Christ died... I mean, that Christ died for you so that you'd be delivered from all of this and you're going to just go back into it. I think that's about as good a definition of insanity as there is. You're rescued from a burning fire. The fireman puts you out and is about to take you to the ambulance. He says, no, wait a minute. Thanks for rescuing me, but I want to go back in there. Crazy. Demons use idols to promote idolatry. Why? Because they hate God. They want to rob God of the worship he deserves. Please turn to Romans chapter 1, verse 21. Romans 1, 21. Romans 1, 21. All right. Romans 1, 21. We're going back to 1 Corinthians. Just remember Here's the truth. 
For even though they knew God, I know that God is one. Here's the problem. They did not honor him as God or give thanks. They knew it, but they didn't honor it. They didn't honor God. They didn't give thanks to God. Instead, they became futile in their speculations. They went off with their knowledge and they, got, they speculated. Think about today. Think about how, you know, I always think of Carl Sagan. Billions and billions. You know, you, you go off on your knowledge and all of a sudden you're speculating about things. Well, you know, I'm going to speculate. I've been to this island and I've seen some of these finches, whatever they were. And I'm going to speculate that the, all of creation came from, you know, one little worm. And then all of a sudden the worm became a frog and the frog became an alligator. And the alligator, you know, and what is that? There's like zero proof of that, by the way. I don't want to get into a science lesson or a political issue. But that's speculation, isn't it? If, you, if, you're, if you're thinking about something that happens millions of years ago, when by definition there were no human beings to observe it, man, that's a speculation. Why'd they do it? Their foolish heart was darkened. They had knowledge, didn't do them any good. Verse 22, professing, I suppose I have knowledge, to be wise, they became fools. What happens? They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God. Here are the idols now. Throw away God's glory and go for an image in the form of corruptible man like Zeus or Apollo and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. By the way, that is a great definition of idolatry. Exchanging the truth of God for a lie and worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. All right, 1 Corinthians 8.6. Let's go back there. 1 Corinthians 8.6. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and we exist for him. And one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, we exist through Him. Paul emphasizes that God's our Father, and that emphasizes His love. Our Lord Jesus Christ loved us so much, He died for us. Jesus Christ created all things, including the wood and the metal and the birds and the four-footed animals. And by the way, even the demons. All are subject to the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? We better look at things through the lens of the mind of Christ. What is the mind of Christ? He sacrificed his rights for our benefit. Think about it. He was God in heaven. He came down to earth. And he didn't come down as a big, mighty king, which he could have. He came down as an as a infant and as somebody who was born in a backward town. And through his whole life, he kept saying, I don't have a place to sleep. And he got rejected and rejected and rejected by so many and died on that most horrible death. He certainly sacrificed his rights for us. That's love. See, the Corinthians had it the other way around. We're going to emphasize our rights. Verse 7, not all men have this knowledge, but some being accustomed to the idol until now eat food as if it were a sacrifice to an idol. They think it's sacrifice to an idol. So they're, they're worshiping something other than God. Their conscience being weak is defiled. So he's saying, listen, there's some brothers and sisters among you that they're bringing their memories, their old life, you know, in their head. That included food. I mean, think about what food means in our culture. 
You know, isn't food associated with holidays? Christmas, the Super Bowl. That's a holiday now. Parties, right? Business meetings. Imagine if you said, I'm not going to the business meeting with this client because of the food they're serving. How would that go with your boss? Not too well. Weddings and funerals. In other words, if there's food sacrificed to idols there, you can't go. If you take that at its word. Now, if you argue it away, well, you can still go. Why can you not do it? Because they believed that eating that food meant they were honoring those gods. I want to give you a quick illustration. Let's imagine that you go to a Catholic church and you go with an ex-Catholic. You were brought up, brought up, let's say, Baptist. So communion time comes and you just go up and you take the bread. You know, to you, that bread is a memorial to the death of Christ. However, to your ex-Catholic friend, it's eating the literal body and blood of Christ. So by eating it, he thinks that he is participating in the evil sacrifice performed on that altar. You see it? So you you may think you have the freedom, but understand what it's going to do to your brother or sister. Some, being accustomed to the idol until now, will eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their weak conscience will be defiled. In other words, it would be but a small step for them to fall right back into the pit. Right back. All it would take for them is to see one Christian they respected eating food sacrificed to idols, and they would start to think, oh, wait a minute, so I guess it's okay to worship Christ and also worship idols? After all, that's what they're doing. You eat that food to me, that means you're worshiping that idol. Must be okay. Now, Paul speaks of a conscience being weak. What does he mean by a conscience? Well, I'm going to go through this quickly, but it's this. Notice the word quickly. I kind of preached too much in the early days. I want to make sure I get you know, everything. The conscience is a human faculty, all right? It decides what's right and what's wrong. I think we know that, right? But it's on the basis of standards. You know, like honor among thieves, right? They have standards and they live by them, but they're faulty, right? <sighs> bad decisions result in, bad standards result in bad decisions. My, my good friend in the cartoons, Dennis the Menace, he's sitting in the corner all he can do is talk to his cat. He tells the cat, I got some bad advice from my conscience. See, that's the problem. Or this one. My dad said to listen to my conscience. He's sitting there eating cookies, right? My dad said to listen to my conscience. <laughs> my conscience says, go for it. See, bad information, bad decisions. And there's another one there too. Um, so what is a weak conscience then? In the context, it's a Christian context that is still under construction. That's all it is. It's a Christian conscience, but it's still under construction. There's still some of the old building there that hasn't been demolished. And so you got that picture, you got the old building still there, the new Christian edifice going up, but there's a sort of a mix there in their heads that they haven't quite worked out. In that situation, it wouldn't take much to convince them about something that's in the old building. You know what? It is okay to worship the Christian God and also the pagan gods. Great. Now I can be at all the family celebrations, the business meetings. My standing in the community won't suffer. Verse 8. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we don't eat nor the better if we do. God's not cheering when you use your freedom in Christ to eat something. Take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. By the way, that's the only command in this chapter. 
And it says what? Take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block, a rock in the path of your brother that can cause them to stumble, fall into the pit. And the pit is a deep, dark sewer of demon-inspired idol worship. If they fall into that pit, they're going to be in big trouble. They're in danger. They've had it. Christ died to rescue them from the pit. And what you do is putting a stumbling block that will cause them to trip and fall right back in. How can that be? How can me, using my liberty, become a stumbling block? There's no such thing as an idol. Verse 10. If someone sees you who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be built up to think it's okay to eat things sacrificed to idols? Therefore, here's the weapon. Through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, destroyed, the brother for whose sake Christ died. So, by sinning against the brethren, here's the real punchline here. And it packs a punch. By sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it's weak, hasn't been completely built up yet, you sin against Christ. Hmm. Supposed to be in a loving Christ, but by my freedom, knowledge I think I have, because I destroyed my brother, I'm sinning against Christ. If food causes my brother to stumble, Paul says, I'll never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Why is this so destructive? Again, your brother, if he sees you dining in an idol's temple, he's going to think you're worshiping that idol. You, don't, you never thought about it that way. But that's how he sees it. And his delicate Christian conscience would collapse under the weight not only of his past associations, but your bad example. And that would make him a goner. He'd be right back in and devoured by the seductions of that idol worship that he came up in. I want to make one other point here. Paul does not say, this is where people get confused. He doesn't say here in chapter 8 that it's okay for those to knowledge, with knowledge to dine in an idol's temple either. Don't misunderstand what he's saying. He's using the illustration of the, young, of the weak brother, but he's not, by doing that, giving them permission to do it if the weak brother isn't there. Why? Because it's, it's, it's wrong for anybody to do it. Their behavior destroys another believer, and that's on them. You know, you might be immune to something, but your brother isn't. You might be immune to a plague. Your brother's not immune. You expose them to the plague. And by the way, as we want to see, that's not the only reason that they should stop the practice of eating this meat sacrificed to idols. He just hopes that they'll, he'll heed the warning right now and think of others. Think of others who would be harmed by their actions. Through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined the brother for whose sake Christ died. Christ died for all of us. We can't just live for ourselves. By sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience, you sin against Christ. You need to learn the lesson. That's the lesson. Paul learned it when he was on the road to Damascus. He was killing Christians. And the Lord came and changed everything. He finally saw something he never saw before. When you strike a brother in Christ, you're really striking Christ. You see, your knowledge was very incomplete, wasn't it? You probably never thought of it that way. 
You can avoid great sins by acting in great love. That's the principle. You might say, wow, man, those warnings are really severe. And I don't want to do that. I think I have in the past. I've wounded people with my knowledge. I don't want to do that anymore. How do I get out of that thing? He says, it's simple. Act with love. And you won't do it. You won't do it anymore. You don't have to come up with reasons or excuses or knowledge. Just line up with the thinking of Christ. Your rights must always give way to the needs of others. Oh, I have rights. You know, you hear that all over the place now. I have rights. Well, that's great. But your rights ought to give way to the needs of others. That the needs of others trump your rights. It's a very foreign concept, but that's Paul's principle. He's going to go into that in chapter 9 as well. And that's where we'll pick things up next Sunday. Let's close. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for all of the things that you've opened our eyes to in the past and that you'll open our eyes to in the future, our heart. We thank you, Father, that Jesus Christ died for our sins and was buried. And on the third day, you raised him from the dead. And it's so simple. Hear good news and believe it. And you'll be saved. That's the message of the gospel. And we just want to thank you for the simplicity of it. And we pray, Father, as we leave today, that we would also not make an issue of our knowledge, of our so-called rights, but rather focus on the needs of others and act with love rather than claiming our rights. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. I almost prayed that, and oh, by the way, Father, even when I go through material fast, may they also absorb it anyway. But I know I kind of sped things up at the end, but it's a simple message, isn't it? It really is a simple message. So, all right. We'll gather together again on Thursday, 7 o'clock, Bible study. Give us your prayer requests. We pray on Bible, at the end of Bible study on Thursday. You can write, there's a box in the foyer. You can just write your prayer request down, put it in there. We'll pray. You can go on our website, www.lbible.org. And you can also give us your prayers on the website, either way. We'd love to be able to pray for your needs. We won't be able to if we don't know what they are. Or somebody else you want us to pray for. And then finally, if you have any questions about the message today, about the gospel, or really anything else, you can speak to me. I'll be here in the front after service. Don't be shy. All right, we do this every week. So nobody's going to think it's weird. The only dumb question is the one you don't ask. All right, let's close again. Father... Again, we just, in awe of you, we praise you for being all-knowing, all-powerful, perfect, loving. And we just ask, Father, that we could always rest in the fact that we're your children. And so that allows us to be challenged by your word, secure in the knowledge of your love for us. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. You are dismissed. Enjoy this day.